Bildad the Shunishite answered, How long will you put an end to utterances? Consider, and afterwards we will speak. Why are we thought of as cattle, stupid in your eyes? One who tears himself apart with his anger, for your sake will the earth be abandoned? Will a crag dislodge it from its place? Yes, the light of the faithless goes out. The flame of his fire doesn't shine. Light darkens in his tent. His lamp above him goes out. His vigorous steps become short. His own counsel throws him down. Because he's thrust into a net by his own feet, and he walks about on to the mesh. A trap grasps him by the heel. Clamps get stronghold of him. A rope for him is hidden in the earth, a trap for him on the trail. All around, terrors terrify him, shatter him at his feet. Trouble is hungry for him. Disaster has prepared for him his stumbling. It consumes his skin-covered limbs. Death's firstborn consumes his limbs. His confidence tears away from his tent. It marches him to the king of terrors. Fire dwells in his tent. Sulfur scatters over his home. Below his roots dry up, above his foliage withers. Commemoration of him perishes from the country, and he has no name in the outside world. They thrust him out from lightness, from light to darkness, drive him out of the world. He has no posterity, no offspring among his people. He has no survivor in his place where he resided. At his day, people in the west are desolate. People in the east grasp horror. Indeed, these are the dwellings of the evildoer. This is the place of the one who did not acknowledge God. Job answered, How long will you torment my entire being? Crush me with utterances. These ten times you have shamed me. You feel no disgrace when you abuse me. Yes, truly should I have erred. Yes, truly should I have erred. My air lodges with me. If you truly magnify yourselves above me and argue with me on the basis of my reviling, acknowledge here that God has put in me put me in the wrong, has put His siege around me. If I cry violence, I don't get an answer. If I call for help, there's no exercise of authority. He's barred my path, and I can't pass. And he sets darkness over my trails. He's stripped my splendor from me, removed my crown from my head. He tears me down all around, and I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. He makes his anger rage against me. He thinks of me as like adversaries for him. His raiding gangs come on me altogether. They've built up their way against me. They've camped at my tent all around. He's put my brothers far from me. My acquaintances have indeed become strangers to me. The people near to me and the people I knew have left off. The people residing in my house have put me out of mine. My servant girls think of me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I've called to my servant, but he doesn't answer when he when with my own mouth I ask for grace. My breath is strange to my wife. I am loathsome to my siblings. Even little children reject me when I get up. They speak against me. All my, all my confidential friends have taken offense at me, and those I've been loyal to have turned against me. My bones sticks to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Be gracious to me. Be gracious to me, you my friends. Because God's hand has touched me. Why do you pursue me like God, and why aren't you full of my flesh? 
If only my utterances were written down, if only they were inscribed in a document, with an iron pen and lead engraved on a crag permanently. But I myself know that my restorer is alive, and at last he will get up on the earth. After my skin has thus been stripped away from my flesh, I will behold God, whom I will behold for myself. My eyes have seen him, and not a stranger. My inner being Within me, uh, my inner being within me, my chest fails. When you say, how have we pursued him? The root of the thing is found in me. Be terrified of the sword for yourselves, because your wrath is wayward acts that deserve the sword, in order that you may acknowledge there that there, that there is judgment. The word of the Lord. The kids' church are invited outside with Kelly this morning for kids' church. Don, you turned me down. You turned me down, yes. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. There's a lot going on back there today. Um, the kids are outside today um, because uh, someone decided to turn on the sprinkler heads outside of the church last night, or not the sprinkler heads, the water faucets, and it led to a flood in the church basement, um, which greeted me when I got to church this morning. Now, many days I think, you know, this idea of organizing my thoughts finally the hour before church starts on Sunday morning may backfire at some point. Um, and yet today, here it did. Um, uh, backfired quite well for me this morning. Um, and so I, I organized as best as I could, um, but, but today's sermon might be a little bit more um, scattered than usual with, with the, uh, the police department coming this morning to take pictures and to, and to look at the water. And, and if the flood gets too big, the, we go into the basement, I think, is what happens. We collapse into the... That would be of biblical proportions. Um, but that brings us to where we are in the book of Job today. Um, this summer, if you haven't been here, we've been walking through the book of Job. And Job... Um, is this book that falls within this wisdom category of the Bible, and it's got several questions that sort of seem to be driving it. What it starts with, and our first sermon was on, um, essentially paradise. Um, Job is upright, fear, uh, blameless, and he fears the Lord, and his life in many ways is perfect. He has children that are happy and hang out with each other. He has cattle, sheep, and flocks. He has servants, and he is seen as this one in this way. And even more so, as the narrator spoke that of Job, God too speaks of Job. Have you considered my servant Job, who is upright and blameless? And there's this way in which if you're somebody, and I've said this several times, but if, you're, if you read books or watch movies, it's like clear this guy, something bad is going to happen to him. If anybody's life is that good at the beginning of the story, it might be good at the end of the story, but it's not good the whole way through. So what happens in the heavenly court scene is, is sort of God and his angels gather, um, and God speaks out that Job is one who loves him. And one appears, this adversary, this ha-satan is what it means. Uh, in Hebrew, it's ha-satan, uh, would be 
really translated as the Satan, um, but it's unclear whether that is the one we know in the New Testament as the one called Lucifer, the father of lies, or if that's an angel whose job it is to sort of prove the faith of people, if he's one who's there to sort of act, uh, be in that way. So the Hasatan, the accuser, which is what it literally means in English, appears. It says, of course, Job fears you. Life works out well for him. But if you allow me to strike him, then he will curse you to your face. After that, four terrible things happen to Job all at once, which makes you um, think of it as like an inciting incident for the rest of the story, is that uh, one servant survives from each of these things. They all show up to his house at the same time and say, it's only I who survived. Your flocks were stolen. Your sheep were stolen. Your house clasped on all of your children, and that this is what happens. And yet Job in that moment does not speak or curse God to his face. Job speaks faithfully that he will accept the good and the bad. So it comes around again. Um, this was Hasatan's question. Does, does Job fear God for nothing? Which is one of the driving questions of the book. But the, but the angels appear again before God after Job's family has been stricken and he's lost all of his material goods. And God again says, you know, have you considered my servant Job? And this is what he says of him, and yet he still maintains his integrity. They incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Job, from the words of God, has been ruined without any reason. And that's important to keep in mind as we go through the book. They'll say, well, surely you have to confess you've done something wrong, this, that, and the other. And if you think about our ways of explaining why bad things happen to those whom we love or those whom we don't love, we have reasons. But in this instance, he's been stricken for no reason. And the reason that, uh, and it's stated from God, um, Oftentimes we can be, life is a mystery. I don't know why that guy turned on the water in the basement. There is no explanation for that. Or maybe there is, up in the heavens. In this particular instance, it stated, he has been stricken for no reason. Which drives another question in the book of Job. What is the role of innocent suffering? Do we have explanations for all the sufferings we see in life? Is there always a way to add it up? And what's interesting about that is, is last week I tried to at least say is that in this way, the whole book of Job is in one way about Jesus and that his body is the story of Job as an innocent sufferer himself. He is, in some sense, and the fulfillment of things, the ultimate in innocent sufferer. He is the one who has done no wrong and yet goes to the cross for our sake. Um, and there are in the Bible, in the New Testament, are many things from the Oloi, Oloi, Shabakma, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, to tears in the garden, um, um, not my will, but yours be done, as Christ does this. Um, and in, in Philippians, which we read last week, um, uh, who took on the form of a servant, going to the lowest low, enduring the shame of the cross. Um, Christ is one whom dies shamefully, um, he dies in, in, actually, in Old Testament language as, a, as a, an outsider, as one outside the camp. Um, he dies as, as a sacrifice in that way. And so we can see the, the parallels with Job with this question and Jesus in that way. 
um, what is the nature of faith. Um, and so that's where his friends come upon him. They can't recognize him because he is so disfigured, and they sit for him for seven days in dust and silence. Job, our third sermon in the series, speaks in Job 3, and he laments the day he was born. He does not curse God, but he does lament the day of his birth. And um, that, I think, was the hardest, at least, section for me because there's so much anguish in what Job has gone through. And this is Scripture. This is the word of the Lord, and yet it contains all of our agony within it. There is no human expression that you can't vocalize to God. You take the Psalms, you take Job, it covers most of our anguish, most of our upsetness. And what interestingly will happen in Job is Job actually accuses God of of many things. Job has sort of this, as we explored in in last week's sermons, the first round of dialogue with his friends. Job um, has faith that God is wrong which is an odd way to have faith, if you think about it. Job has, um, in the words of one commentator, upside-down hope or upside-down faith. I know that there's been an error because I don't deserve to be suffering. Now, what's interesting about that is Job's friends have all sorts of advice on why he might be suffering. And some of it, much of it sounds good to our ears. And what I want to say, first off, if you're reading the book of Job and you don't occasionally listen to one of his friends' advice and go, that doesn't sound that bad, then you're not reading the book of Job well. They're meant to be stand-ins for us as we confront our friends in suffering. So if you read through and watch his friend's advice and be like, I've never said that, probably just silent. That would be the only way you can get away with not trying to explain the suffering in the world is by just silence, which might be the answer, by the way. Um, But we'll get to that in time. But um, last week we went through then that dialogue, and Job has these three friends, as I've said, and they come, and they, they sort of explain to him one thing that they know. For instance, last week the first friend said, you know, um, I had a vision that we're all flawed, which, again, doesn't seem like you need to have a vision to get to that point. Um, you know, I, I've, I've prayed deeply, and I've come to the idea that we all are a little bit bad. Thanks, that helps a lot. Um, so one uses visions. One uses tradition, which is one that is, is dearer to my heart, um, because I'm one who likes tradition. One, he says, you know, according to all the traditions we have, this is how we solve this problem. And then the third friend um, sort of combines the both. Um, But after each friend speaks, Job speaks. And Job refuses to relent. But after his last friend spoke, and this will take up much of the rest of the book, is Job believes that he should be able to have a court case with God. Last week when he introduced it, he was sort of like, look, if it happens, I'll know I'll lose. Because either he'll outsmart me, he'll overpower me, or I won't be able to speak. But if there were someone who could stand with me, and we could hash this out, I would be proven innocent. The end of the book of Job, it stated that Job spoke faithfully of God and his friends did not. Though you incited me against to ruin him without any reason. There are big challenges in the book of Job. What is this language and speech? How are his friends saying things that sound reasonable to us often always wrong? 
How are we to hear one who accuses God in this way? Now, Job does not have the heavenly courtroom scene that we have. And what I think is interesting to keep in mind that I always try to think of is neither does God appear on the scene and say, look, me and the accuser had a little bit of fun. Got out of hand, sorry. Um, Like, that is not the answer he receives either. I mean, that's the way... Um, I am not a poetic genius like the people who composed the Bible, but that's the way I would have solved the story is like at some point God reveals to him that like, look, this is what happened. We'll get there, but that's not actually what Job has ever revealed. It's never revealed to him that one, that even in heaven he's considered innocent, and two, um, that he was right in his, his understanding of the situation. Um, it says that he spoke faithfully, but never has he given the inside picture that we have. Um, and so last week, the last thing I want to sort of go back to is that we placed Job within the realm of creation, which makes it a full but limited book in the sense that Job's friends never say, remember how we were slaves in Egypt and God heard our cry and rescued us. Job's friends never remind him that we have a day in which we will abide in the promised land full of milk and honey and God will be near to us. They never speak of a temple in which there is a presence in which he can go and offer sacrifices and bring his case before God which is to say that, that Job um, exists within the history, and I think this is why it speaks to so many people still today, exists within just what we deal with in our created, ordinary, everyday lives. There is no um, alternative to jump outside of the story to God's redemptive acts or God's consummating acts. It exists only in the linear frame, and so it's why Job's friends are never uh, will say to him, well, look, when you get to heaven, you can plead your case. Um, There's not so much a concept of heaven in the Old Testament anyways, but even then, that's not the logic of what the book is governed by. Um, And so that gets us to where we are today. Today, what I thought we'd do is just zoom in on 18 and 19, which are two, um, um, sorry, is just um, Bildad, the Shuite speech that shall be read, and then Job's speech, which I read. Um, Now, we read that from uh, the First Testament, which is this new translation of the Old Testament by um, John Goldengay. It's it's good. If you want to read it, you can borrow mine. It has often insights. Although as we were doing it, I was like, it's great when we use these new translations, the message or this or something else, with passages that are familiar to us. I know many of you have Job 18 memorized, and so it all sounded foreign. I think, for me at least, every time I've sat down to read Job, it sounds foreign because it's not a book I know as well as the Gospels. Um, But one of the things I want to start with today, and we'll end with it too, is um, one last thing. Job's friends, that's symbolized by the three, speak to Job about God often, and that'll come up today. Job speaks back to his friends, but he also addresses God, which is one of the things that sets Job apart in his understanding of this situation. He does not forget that he can still pray to God. Job's friends have this sort of logic situation, which brings me to this illustration. Park, can I borrow your bulletin? Um, I'll get to that in a sec. I forgot to put this. This is the type of thing I add to this PowerPoint in the morning and I had forgotten today. Um, 
reading the book What is Philosophy by um, Giles Deleuze, uh, Gilles Deleuze, and Felix Guattari, um, two postmodern philosophers, um, I, I was reading this section, that, and I'll read the quote on the back, but what they talk about is much of life, of how we understand life, of how we live, is we set these umbrellas up in the world. Now, Kelly doesn't let our family own umbrellas because we're Coloradans and we have Gore-Tex. But I drew an umbrella so that we could do that. Um, we set these umbrellas up in the world. And what happens is, is we come under these, these umbrellas and they shelter us from the chaos, the storm, the pain of the world. And these things are good. It's why God has provided shelter for us in some ways. To solely exist in the chaos of the world is not a sustainable way of living. More so than that, um, to do so, if anybody says they do, I would just say uh, you have to severely either question their sanity or their understanding of what that might mean. Um, and so we set these things up. What happens, though, sometimes when we stand under the umbrella is we get down in the sand and we draw figures for how we explain all of the world. We begin to set into stone like, well, when good things happen, when good people do good things, they're rewarded. When bad people do bad things, they suffer. And this is one example from the book of Job. But if you think about the ways in which you yourself try to understand the world, um, in, as those drawings in the sand, and then often what happens is something causes the umbrella to break. And at this moment, we have two options. One, to repair the umbrella, or two, to let the rain come in and damage all of our little figures about how we survive in the world. Now that is, um, uh, in teacher language, they still use this, Shelley, a, a life space crisis. Uh, no, that's, that was Kelly's time, so teachers, they reinvent this. Something else today. It's a life space crisis. You have to re-question all of your reality because something has changed the facts of the story. In the quote uh, on the back of the bulletin, people are constantly putting up umbrella that shelters them in a firmament of convictions and opinions. But poets make a slit in the umbrella. They tear open the firmament itself to let in a little bit of the free and windy chaos and to frame in a sudden light a vision that appears through the tear. But then the crowd of entertainers come and repair the umbrella with something vaguely resembling the vision. The crowd of the commentators who patch over the tear with opinions. Thus, other artists are always needed to make slits to carry out their necessary and perhaps ever greater destructions, thereby destroying their predecessors, the incommunable novelty that they would no longer see. Um, two things there. One, if that's a bit of the point of postmodern philosophy is to continually tear down, which is why I wouldn't endorse their perspective <laughs> entirely. But their, their argument that poets and philosophers do this is interesting because often a piece of art or a conversation will also cause those slits in our umbrella. And what I want to say for Job's friends, Job is the, either the ways in which they rebuild that entire umbrella all of the moral order that they've understood, how creation has come and being, everything is questioned by this in its suffering of Job. And like us, when our umbrella tears, when there's something there that confronts it, we would much rather repair it than deal with the sufferer before us. 
And so one of the things in Bildad's speech today and all the speeches is what they're doing is they're protecting a theology. They're protecting a way of understanding and the way that the world works. And to lose that, and again, this is where we should be sympathetic to his friends, to lose the way you've always thought the way the world is ordered would certainly cause you to be in a free fall. And so Job's friends, Bildad and the other ones, are trying to piece back together this world, and they double down on their theology. There's another way in the modern world, we have theologies like that today, um, there's another way in the modern world in which this shows itself too is in ideologies. We live in a, an ideological age, perhaps sometimes more than a theological age. That might have been the past, but we live in an ideological age where everything constantly has some simple explanation, some ex- explanation that we believe to be true no matter what facts confront us. And it's terrible when you have an argument with somebody about this, whatever it may be on either side of the political spectrum or something else, um, that the questions, they just keep coming back to defending the same point over and over and over again. It's a bit to say that the ideology that I've constructed in the sand to explain any sort of um, injustice in the world or any sort of uh, free market uh, economics, that's, that's one of my favorites, is, is when you begin to question something in the free market, people are like, it's, it's a bit of a circular logic. It always comes back around and around, which isn't to say that it's bad. It's just to say, can we stop for a moment and talk? Um, and what I was thinking about ideologies, of course, none greater than perhaps Marxism reigns in our world still, but I was thinking about Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he has this wonderful line about um, forgetting God, which I think can happen with our theologies and our ideologies. We'll get to... What's interesting about Bildad's lecture that Shelby read for us is that he doesn't say anything about God until the end. His theology, his ideology is so structured that it doesn't even need God to keep going. So Sosanitsyn writing said, more than a half a century ago when I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation of the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this happened. Since then, I've spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of the revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as consciously as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. Job's friends, Bildad in this instance, our ideologies, our theologies, oftentimes can cause us to forget God. And in that, we lose our humanity as well. Because what understanding the world becomes about is more about a system than it is about trusting in the living God. It becomes our way of being able to explain and handle everything more than it comes about a way of living. And in my own life, as we talked about in one of the earlier sermons, um, there was a bit of, for me, I had this um, ideology or this theology of the medical industrial complex. As I get sick, I go to the hospital or doctor to give me pills, I get better. When I got multiple sclerosis, that was thrown into a bit of a, um, a tailspin on, wait, this is 
there's no cure, but I'm only 30. Like, what do you guys do here? Like, now, unspokenly, I would never have said, I have that much hope in my little sketch of the medical industrial complex to save me. Yet most of my life was lived as, look, you know, I'm young. If I get something, they'll just give me a pill and it'll go away and I'll be better. Um, Luckily, that's kind of what happened, although it came in a roundabout way and came with lots of fear. And so now I've reaffirmed my trust in the medical industrial complex. Um, That's the operative framework that I had of going and living and being in the world. And so when that was thrown into flux, it was was clear that I had forgotten God as well. Um, I had forgotten other truths. Um, I had never really thought of having anything for my entire life until I got that. And then I was like, oh, my body. (laughs) One thing I have for my entire life that I had never thought of is my body. Um, It always seemed like something alternative. Uh, Anyways, um, that struck me as profound at the time. Um, But that was, that is sort of what's happening for Job and his friends, is that they have these ideologies, and like Bildad in his speech, he's forgotten God. The second thing I want to draw attention to in Bildad's speech before we get to Job's real fast here is I love at the beginning um, of his speech, oh, the quote on the back of the bulletin from last week just was this short little poem, which is essentially a summary of everything I just said. Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, out Lord, are more than they. Um, we build up all these little broken lights to explain how the world should function according to our designs. We protect them. We build them up. And thou, out Lord, are more than they. Um, that is how we function through this in the world. Um, what Bildad says um, to Job, um, you who tear yourself to pieces in anger, is the earth to be abandoned for your sake or must the mox- rocks be removed from their place? This is one of the things that we say that we think is profound, but isn't that quite profound, which is to say, look, in a billion years when everything is gone, will any of your innocent suffering matter? Anybody can come up with any number of time to minimize the pain or suffering or question you're asking. And it's sometimes a needed truth. We can be sympathetic to this. When a young kid, um, when, when you get dumped in high school and your parents sit you down and they're like, look, you're 14, you never went on a date, you barely know this girl, life goes on, and in five years this won't matter that much. There's some truth in that, right? But there's a point at which you can say, um, my innocent suffering, my loss of a friend, my loss of a husband, my loss of a parent, in which the same point can be made, look, when the sun burns out and all of life is consumed by the orb and the universe collapses back into itself, will any of this matter? Which of the point is like, are you even listening? And I think that is... Um, I see this come up a lot, I guess, is is what I would say, is that so often this seems like rhetorical wisdom when it is, in fact, not rhetorical wisdom. It's just an observation that can be used to minimize anything. If the Earth were to wipe out a nuclear war, um, would that really matter a billion years from now? (laughs) Are you even listening? Um, 
is the type of question we should answer those things with. That's one of Bildad's thing. The next thing, like I said, he forgets God. The other interesting part about Bildad's sort of thing is that it's, um, Ryan and I have talked about this a little bit after church. Uh, Rabbi, why can I, Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote a book called um, Why Good Things, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Um, Bildad, and I think most of us actually have more confidence in that bad things happen to bad people. He's completely left off that, look, good people prosper, bad people suffer. And this, as this goes on, this dialogue with their friends, they double more down on, look, like, hey, maybe bad things happen to good people, but we can all agree at least bad people get what they deserve. Um, the more terrifying question is, why do good things happen to bad people? Um, that's really earth-shattering when you think about it. Why do good things keep happening to these bad people? Um, and so for Job's friends, and interestingly in Bildad in this speech, he's just going to continually go on about, hey, the bad people will have the bad thing ultimately happen to them. Which again, given infinite time, they die, which seems like an easy out. Yeah, but they too will die. And it's like, so will the good. We're not getting anywhere. But this is the type of logic they've spun themselves into is sort of, um, hey, we're not quite sure. You're right, Job. Sometimes... Uh, they never say that he's right, but that they sort of surrender that, yeah, sometimes bad things happen to good people, but at least the bad people really get what they deserve. Um, and this is the moral universe that they're really trying to protect. In a lot of ways, I think it's the moral universe um, that we're trying to protect as well, is that Job's friends have this way of sort of doubling down on that accord. Um, is sort of, of living into that frame of, of that at least bad things will happen to bad people. Job's speech um, is interesting in its own way. He first accuses the friends, says, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? Maybe living in silence is right. Um, a theologian I like, I believe it's Stanley Harwas, but he talks about Christianity is the training to live in the silences. Explanation is not what we're given. Explanation is not given in Job's case. Uh, questions are, but not explanation. If his friends had learned to live into the silences with him, and they did for seven days, which is often better than we can do, um, he admits that he might have committed a sin, but it would be certainly the type of sin that the sun goes down on within a day. Whatever has happened to him is far outweighed whatever minor thing he might have forgotten, the sin of omission. And though I cry violence, I get no response. And though I cry for help, there is no justice. In the first part of this dialogue, Job begins to pick up his pace again that it is God who has gone to war with him. God has stricken Job. And what happens is in this list in verses 13 to 20, his life falls apart. His family move away from him. His relatives go away. His closest friends forget him. His guests and his female servants no longer count him. Among them, they count him as a foreigner. He summons his servant. They don't answer. His breath, I think is funny, is offensive to his wife, which I think means his presence is not allowed to be in the presence of his wife. And if you've worked with people who suffer... Um, in homelessness often, one of the things that separates bad news in my life from the bad news that a homeless person had is that my social safety net is relatively stable, strong, and I have not exhausted it yet. 
And many of the people who have reached the bottom of life um, in a lot of ways, um, through abandonment and all this, what happened is their social safety net, all the things that they had, they've either worn out, um, and that can happen through addiction or mental illness, or it can be that they had a small social safety net to begin with. Um, so count yourself blessed if you have a large amount of relatives and friends and people near to you that can help you navigate the challenges of life to say that. But what Job is saying here is all of that has failed me. All of that has been reversed. Have pity on me, friends. Have pity for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? And then he says, uh, Bildad's speech, he says, look, the, the evil are forgotten. They die and they go away. And what Job says is like, I would like to be able to write down my case. I would like to write it on a scroll with an iron tool on lead or to have it engraved in rock forever. Job wants some permanence to the anguish that he's feeling. Um, and so he echoes these words that are the most famous words probably from the book of Job um, from Handel's Messiah, which I thought about playing today, but that was in the preliminary church Prep Carla, so it did not get played. Um, and it's interesting, these words in Handel's Messiah, does anybody know, aside from Carla, where they appear, uh, that the, where they sing this? Is after the Hallelujah Chorus, which I would have not have thought as the next move in that piece. I would have thought this would have been earlier. Um, but it seems after that grand vision, that is the appropriate response. Um, uh, just shortly before we get to... Job's word. I did have Rachel read from the Gospel of John, who sinned, this man or his parents, because he was born blind. Job's friends, uh, Jesus' disciples having the book of Job make the same mistake Job's friends do. We, having the book of Job and what Jesus responds to his disciples with, make the same mistake that Job's friends do. And I asked my professor who taught me the book of Job, how do we keep doing this? Because that week, uh, I said, can't we do better? And he said, this week, there was a hurricane in Minneapolis, um, uh, and somebody had blamed it on uh, a church meeting that was happening there. We too think our little systems are strong enough to hold. But anyways, what Job speaks here, I know in this moment of hope that breaks through, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet I and my flesh will see God. I will see him myself with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What Job means by this, you can spend a lot of time reading about. Certainly from the New Testament perspective, what Job means by this is that he has a Redeemer who will stand upon the earth, will renew his flesh, and he will see God. That is the good news we have as well. What Job might mean is that the advocate that he's been waiting for to bring his case against God will come and renew with him. And that's interesting too for us because we have many ways of thinking about the ways the cross of Jesus functions. And one of them has to do with an adversary God. But what's interesting in Job's story is God is not his adversary. Go back to the beginning of the book. The Hasatan is God's adversary. And so the Redeemer that God longs for is one that will renew the relationship that he's misunderstood. 
but will not bring a definitive pace against God. He will stand upon the earth in his flesh, and he will see God. How my heart yearns within me for that. This is one of those moments where hope breaks into Job's story. I want to close with, I would have liked to spend more time there, maybe I will next week. I want to close with one more observation, which is the thing that the handle of the umbrella that we have that we can hold on to is the cross of Christ. This is not a political remembrance. This is September 11th. And when one of the, the Rowan Williams was speaking at Trinity Church the day it happened, I think he was giving a series of lectures there, but he was struck by the number of crosses that appeared in the destruction. And one of the things that people asked after September 11th, before it uh, became more of a political question, um, but was deep in New Yorkers' mind was where was God in the midst of the chaos? Where was God in the storm of our lives? And Rowan Williams, grand theologian that he was, when he looked at those crosses, he's, he saw, he proclaimed the question um, somewhat off. Um, he said that, that God is not meant to be our help today. But then what he later comes around to is that God is in the midst of the chaos. And so when our umbrellas rip, our ways of structuring and saving our lives, our theologies and our ideologies destroy, we, in the midst of that storm, should we have um, the faith within us, and I, like I said earlier, pain breaks people, um, can cling to the cross of Christ that exists in the midst of that storm. There was no umbrella for that one who became sin for our sake to rescue us as enemies of God and bring us back. It is in that cross we find the one who redeems us. In the words of Job, the Redeemer who lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after our skin has been destroyed, yet in the flesh we will see God. Let us pray. God, we have journeyed with Job. I've heard the story of, of the heavenly scene in which the question, what is the point of faith? Do we fear God for what we get? Or do we come to God as one who is living, who doesn't provide us with safe and simple systems to explain everything, but one who provides life and gift to us and one whom we cling to in our redemption? God, draw us closer to you during this time. May we see you as our Redeemer who lives, and that the systems we have, the ideologies that we structure, the ways in which we think we can safely plan and program our lives are bound to fail, these little systems. But in there, we have a place in which we can stand and be with you a Redeemer who lives in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Abide with me, fast falls the evening. 